The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, so good to be in the Word, and that worship was excellent. Um, one of my favorite things of the past couple weeks as we've been going through this hard season was, has been all the stories that have been shared, and uh, I want my turn. So uh, I wanted to share, uh, just as, before we get started, just my experience getting to meet Pastor Ray in person for the first time. Uh, my family started coming here when I was in fourth grade, and then, uh, you know, from fourth grader, you know, looking at this place, we were in PQ first, but then eventually here, and you see Pastor Ray on stage, and he's larger than life, you know, literally on the screen. And, uh, and then it, in, I think it was ninth grade, I became friends with Pastor Daniel. Uh, he was one of the leaders in the high school group. This is where you think, you look older than Pastor Daniel. I'm younger than Pastor Daniel. Um, and uh, so he became a leader, and I was a freshman, sophomore in there. And he invited me to go surfing after church. I was like, great. And, uh, and if you know anything about Daniel, he's cheap. Uh, and so he's like, let's go to my house first to make sandwiches. To this day, he's still the person on staff who goes home most often to, make, to eat lunch. Uh, so he's like, let's go back to my parents' house and we'll make sandwiches. And so you know, to, he, he was oblivious to the fact that to me, this was a big deal. I was going to Pastor Ray's house. And, uh, and so we go in, and we're the, we beat him there. We got there first, and uh, we're making sandwiches, and it feels weird, you know? And he comes in like a normal guy. It was so weird, and uh, just says, hey, guys. And he goes upstairs, and he comes back down in exactly what my dad would wear on a Sunday afternoon, like old shorts, like probably 20-year-old shorts, and an old Harvest Crusade T-shirt, and just says, hey, pass the bread. And I'm just like, Pastor Ray uses bread, uh, you know? And then he wants mayonnaise. He wants mayonnaise. That's so weird. And it was just, and then Daniel suggested when we went surfing that I use his, surf, Pastor Ray's surfboard. And, and uh, that was scary. Um, but it was so good. And then just one more, one more. Uh, like two years later, Daniel's now the high school pastor. And he puts me on the spot for my first time teaching in the high school ministry. And... Uh, and he, he, it was a Tuesday night. We were doing Tuesday nights even back then. And, uh, and so I'm getting up in front of the high schoolers. And what he didn't tell me was that he had invited his dad to also share that night. So I had to teach in front of Pastor Ray and be followed by Pastor Ray. Uh, this was intimidating. And, um, and so I got up and I shared something. I have no clue what I said. And I go back and sit down and... and, and Pastor Ray gets up and he's sharing and a little while in he goes, you know, it was so good what Jason said, blah, 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 blah. And, and at first no one knew who he was talking about because he just kept saying Jason. And he said, Jason Barley was right on point. He gave me a last name too. And all of a sudden we're like, everyone's like, do you mean Jared? And so it's just months ago, he would still as a fun, just call me Jason Barley. Uh, and I just was like, you sent me a Christmas card. How do you not know my name? but he sends us all Christmas cards. And so it was such a blessing uh, to get to grow up learning from him, learning from his son. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to remembering him on Friday. 
But for today, we uh, will be in Romans. We'll be all over the place. I'm going to put them on the screen, but you can try and track along also. Uh, We're going to start in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. And I've titled this, Abound in Hope. We're going to be looking at the topic of hope. We're going to look at it from a number of texts. And I just think there's so much for us in hope. I was looking back at the last couple times I taught in here and realizing that I've taught like the last three times in here on love, which if you're going to teach on the same subject three times, love's a good subject to teach on. But I figured I should move on to another subject. And so if I have to pick my next subject, it's going to be hope. And so Romans chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Now, may the God of hope, this is one of his titles, This is who he is. He's the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we want to abound. You want us to abound, to overflow, to be completely filled up and beyond walking in you in abundance, Lord. So we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us on this thing that you speak of so constantly throughout scripture, this hope that you've called us to, that you've given us, that we've inherited, that we have been called into, Lord God. Speak to us of your hope and how it ought to impact dramatically our lives. Lord, let it be something that we live constantly with At the forefront of our minds, Lord God, we have a hope, an expectation of all that you have done and are doing. So we pray that you bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with the Battle of Trenton. Uh, I'm a history nerd. I love history. Uh, 1776. uh, December 26th of 1776. About six months after the Declaration of Independence had been signed. At the time of the Declaration of Independence, the people had gotten stirred up. They were excited. There were people who enlisted. They they signed up for certain periods of time, and they they began the American Revolution, right? And uh, and there had been little rebellions and things stirring, and and now really this was just a glorified rebellion. It wasn't quite a revolution, but they were were battling the the British. They, They were battling also the Haitians, who were the Germans who were hired by the British. And in December of 1776, things looked grim. Uh, They had lost so many men, both to uh, losing their lives in battle, to deserting, and then also to, when their enlistments were up, not re-enlisting. And so, so George Washington was at this crossroads of what to do next. Because it felt like if they didn't do something, they were going to lose everything. That, that it wasn't just that they were going to lose by being defeated in battle. They were going to lose because no one was going to be up for the fight. No one was going to have any confidence that they could do anything. And so he led their last 2,400 tr- troops, the, 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 act, uh, the healthy ones, the ones that were ready, the ones that were nearby. He led them into battle in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, To get there, you have the famous painting where he was crossing the Delaware, right? Uh, And so right in that season, the 24th and the 25th, uh, right through Christmas, they they prepared and they were on the march. 
and they were headed towards Trenton, and the weather became utterly terrible. It was raining and snowing and sleeting sideways, wind slush. It was horrendous weather. Most of the troops, if they had shoes, they only had parts of shoes. Their clothes were tattered so that they didn't do a sufficient job keeping the, the cold out. They didn't have enough uh, food, so they were, they were malnourished. And they marched through the night to get to this battle because this was their last opportunity. I could go into more details, but they, they came in from three sides. They had this whole plan. The Haitians were caught off guard because they had been, heard rumors that they were coming, but they had heard rumors seven days prior, so they'd kept a watch around the clock. But the thing was, as this day came, after, after they never arrived, after they saw some little attempts at little uh, rebellions on the side, they thought, well, that must have been it. This weather's so bad. And they stopped keeping watch because they said no one in their right mind would march armies in weather like this. But George Washington did. And so they brought the troops into Trenton. They had their plan from all three sides, and it was a rout. They only lost two soldiers, the Americans, and that was actually to the weather. Uh, the Haitians lost about 80 soldiers. They had 900 surrender, and, and America took Trenton. The, the, our troops took Trenton. And it was just this pivotal, pivotal moment in the war. But the thing is, the thing is that the, this location of Trenton was not all that important of a location. Actually, just two days later, George Washington would decide to retreat back from Trenton and leave this location. And the reason why this battle is remembered as such a pivotal battle in the war was not because of you know, this supreme location that they could hold down and this is where everything came down to was this location. But instead it was because the people of America needed hope. That is why this was the turning point in the war because people had fled, they had, they had left their posts, they had stopped enlisting, they were, they were kind of almost safeguarding to where the, if the British just squelched this, they could say like, oh, we weren't with them. They, they were kind of like washing their hands of it. But this battle was able to uh, bring out a, an anticipation and a, a, an expectation of victory. And from this battle, and that's what so often was the case throughout this, you know, there were different letters, Benjamin Franklin and different individuals would write letters to try and elicit, you know, passion and hope from the people. But this was the thing that finally did it. When this happened, it went from a rebellion to an American revolution. It turned into something that really brought out people's confidence. It actually would help lead to the French and the, uh, who else, the Spanish helping us, coming along, sending out troops, because there was actual confidence in what could be done. And so everyone's actions changed. Their involvement changed. Their attitudes changed because they had hope. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at how we have a God of hope, and because we have a God of hope who has given us real, true, profound hope that we can have complete and utter confidence in, it should change our actions. It should change how we live, that we should be compelled by our hope, that it's not just something that is a, a nice optimism without any certainty, but the hope that God calls us to is a, is a confident expectation 
that he is doing something. So you can look all the way down at the last note on the page that you guys have for you there. What I want to end with is I want to end with how God calls us to fruitfulness for hope, fruitfulness in our hope, that he calls us to live these lives bearing much fruit because we have hope. We're not to have a confidence in eternity and a confidence in God and then hunker down and try and be safe. We're not to have a confidence and a certainty in who God is and what he's doing in eternity and then just to tread water. No, we're to have hope and then we're to gain ground. We're to have hope and then we're to excel. We're to have hope and we're to push forward. God calls us to this certain hope where we then abound in our lives. We overflow. We push forward. That's what I want to look at is how he calls us to this. Because in our lives uh, and in our day, we think of the word hope and, uh, and it comes to this idea of, of something we would like to happen, but we don't have confidence in it happening. That's how we use the word hope. Like for me, uh, recently I was working on hanging a swing in my daughter's room uh, and I have a very lousy stud finder. And so what I had was kind of our modern vernacular use of the word hope that I would find the middle of the stud. Right? And that I would, if any of you guys have ever tried to find a stud and you tried to hang something in a stud, you just have hope because then you're putting bolts into it and then there's going to be lots of little kids at your growth group swinging on this swing. And my hope was faulty. Uh, that hope was not a confident hope and it turned out to be accurate to not be confident because boy has it come down three times. Um, some of you guys have skills in that type of stuff, craftsmanship, or would be I'm cheap like Daniel, uh, or would just go buy a nice stud finder. I just try and knock and use my $5 stud finder and I hope as this world hopes, you know, in that kind of uncertainty. But what God calls us to when he says hope is an assuredness that it is happening, that he is coming again, that he has victory, that he has conquered, and the only uncertainty is the exact timing of it, is exactly what it will look like. It is happening, but exactly how will it happen? So he calls us to live with this certainty, with this confident expectation and anticipation of the fact that he is moving, that he has moved, and that we have eternity to look forward to. We have victory, we have the wiping away of every tear, we have the fixing of every illness, we have an assurance that we have an inheritance with him. And so I want to give you guys five aspects of hope that help us to look at how we walk in this hope. And so the first one is that he calls us to a perspective of hope, that we are to have a perspective of hope, a perspective, meaning the, the way in which we observe things, the way in which we process and look at something, that we are to have this perspective that all of the world around us is observed through the hope that God has given us. And so read with me again Romans 15, 13. It says, now may the God of hope, meaning he's the giver of hope, he's the originator of hope, he's the cause of hope, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the, he's the giver of hope, the originator of hope. And what it tells us here is that we can have three things in our hope. That we can have joy, 
Because when our eyes are on him, when our perspective is on him, when, when the whole way in which we process the world is on what is to come, we can have joy in all circumstances. We can have joy in every scenario. We can then, it says also, we can have peace. We sang it a moment ago, peace that we can't explain, that we can't understand because it's about what he has done and what is coming. That the things that are in front of us don't shake us. They don't rattle us because we know we don't have an uncertainty. We're rattled when, when, there's, when there's a lack of confidence. We're rattled when we think this is all there is. We're rattled when we think I have no recourse. But we're not rattled when we have hope that we are abounding in, that we're lunging forward in, that we are overflowing in. So God calls us to a perspective of hope, and that hope brings joy and peace. Apart from that hope, we have bitterness, we have anxiety, we have frustration. We look at the world around us, and it only leaves us lacking and feeling not enough. But when we have hope, we have a perspective that brings us freedom from those things. I love uh, this author, Viktor Frankl. I've actually quoted him up here before. Uh, he's a Holocaust survivor. He, in his teens, he was already quite the intellect, knowing that he wanted to go into a study of psychology and, uh, and beyond, just a really bright guy. And, and what he did is he then lived through the Holocaust, and he took a lot of his understanding of, of how we operate and, and, and the way we respond to adversity from what he experienced. And so in his time in the Holocaust, he, he observed that the, when people's lives are shaken, when they go through adversity, that there's, there tends to be four things that come out of them. And, and what he would actually go on to say is it's not just in, obviously, this huge, extremely difficult situation like the Holocaust, but he says it's in daily lives. You see when we're stretched or when we're pressed, when we're pushed, we, we have four real ways in which we respond. And so the first one is that people got brutal. That there, when he was there in the Holocaust, that he would see people who were genuinely loving people as they got into these situations, they would become brutal and, and antagonistic to even their fellow Jews around them, that they would treat them harshly, even children, even, even people who were in pain and suffering, that they would, they would just become brutal in response to everything that they were enduring. And then he said that there were people who just gave up, that they... You would see it, they, they, they had some kind of uh, fortitude, they had some kind of passion or effort, but as time went on, they would give up. He said for a lot of them, they would have something that they would look forward to, that they would say, oh, that, that, oh we think, you know, that, that the armies are, the battle's gonna turn by this date. There was one guy that actually had had a dream, he said that, um, that by March 30th, the war was gonna end. And he said that you could see this guy when, when, as the days approached and it was clear that the war wasn't gonna end, that, that his countenance just changed. And that on that day, he just refused to get out of bed. Because he had, he had these things that he thought would, would be the turning point. They, they had placed their confidence and their, their expectation on these dates or these things that they had this worldly hope in. He said that people held on because they had a dream that when the war was over, their lives would turn back to normal, that, that, that they would basically get through this season, they would just hunker down, they would, they would get gritty, and they would just persevere. 
But he says for those when they got through the war and life wasn't the same and they still had pain, they still had anger, they didn't get their homes back, they didn't get their life that they had had before back, that it wasn't that those people after the war uh, became defeated and, and gave up. And then he said there was this other group, though, and they had a hope. They had hope in something beyond just victory in this war. They had hope beyond where they would be after the war. They had hope that wasn't based on confidence in the allied forces. They had hope that wasn't based on what tomorrow would look like, but they had hope in God. They had hope in their creator. They had hope in what he would ultimately do, that he would ultimately bring justice, that he was righteous, and that he was holy. And we see this in the world all around us, that people place their hope in different things, their confidence in different things, and they're devastated that they think this thing or that thing will be ultimately what fills them up. And yet, what God tells us is that our only great expectation and anticipation should be eternity with him. That we can pursue all sorts of goals, we can have all sorts of things that we do in this life, absolutely. But what our hope is in is not what we achieve or what we pursue, but it is in him on the throne. It is in his salvation given to us that we can be brought near, that we can have relationship with him. And so we do not struggle as those who have no hope. We don't go through any of our difficulties as those who have no hope. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We don't raise our kids as those who have no hope. We don't interact with friends as those who have no hope. We don't pursue careers. We don't deal with failure. We don't go through everyday life as those who have no hope. We have a perspective of hope. And so we're not shook by day to day. We're not shook by not getting the position or not having things shape out like we thought they would. We have a hope that is in salvation and that's not gonna change. That's not gonna be rattled. That's, not, that's never failing. It says that our inheritance is in heaven where moth and and bugs and weather and anything, nothing destroys it, right? That our hope is in Christ. And then our next section, and this is just something that I just have been saying in my mind all day, just because it's so beautiful. We have a birthright of hope. I have a birthright of hope. Say it with me. I have a birthright of hope. Okay, it didn't mean anything to you yet because we hadn't read the verse yet. We'll say it again, and it will mean something to you then. All right, 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in the heavens for you. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, who has begotten us, given a new birth to us, to a living hope. That's where I get that birthright of hope, that we have been given a new birth to living hope that we were all born into different lives and different families in this world, that we, some of us were born into families with a lot of uh, 
earthly goods, and some of us were born to families with very little earthly goods. Some of us were born into large families or small, to have a last name that meant something or to have a last name that, you know, whatever, it's my last name, right? Uh, my birthright uh, as a Burke was that my dad worked at Frito-Lay and my brother worked at Frito-Lay, and so I had a chip truck in front of my house throughout my whole adolescence. And so my birthright was that if a friend came over, the single thing I could do to impress them was to get the keys to the truck and go let them pick any bag of chips they wanted. That was my birthright. My brother, he acted upon that birthright, and he now works for Frito-Lay as well. I took a different path. Um, but our birthright in Christ is that we're sons and daughters of Christ. We have so much, but the thing he says here is our birthright is a living hope that we have as sons and daughters of Christ, we are no longer without hope, as it says in Ephesians chapter two. It says in Ephesians chapter two, the bleakest verses that there are, it says, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, that's tough, being aliens from the commonwealth, meaning you didn't have any access to any of the benefits of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise. So none of the promises of God had anything to do with us. Said, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the worst thing that could be said of anyone. Having no hope and without God in the world. But, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we now, though we had no hope, we had no inheritance, we were aliens from the commonwealth, we now have a birthright of hope. Our last name is his name, that we are sons and daughters of Christ, that, that we are able to call upon that. And because of that, we have this inheritance that some of you guys have friends who've had inheritances and they know that one day they're gonna take over you know, some family business, they're gonna take over some wealth, they're gonna, they're gonna live on with some prestige of, of, of some family. But what it says here is the greater than any of those, we have this birthright that we know that ultimately we have eternity. We don't look forward to an inheritance on this earth, we look forward to our inheritance in heaven. And so all of this life is lived based off of that. You live differently when you know there's a lot of money waiting for you, right? But you should live even more differently when you know that you have eternity in heaven waiting for you. When you have nearness to God right now, when you have been brought into his presence. And so now we are a part of his family. We are part of his inheritance. We are part of his purpose. Our whole outlook should be shaped by that birthright. That if you are truly the son of someone important, the daughter of someone important, and you walk around with a little bit different of, a, of a, like a moxie, like a chutzpah, like a, like a confidence, you walk around with a different attitude, right? We've all seen them. You know, we've seen them walk into different places, friends of ours, and you know, if your friend's parents own like a sandwich shop, they walk in like, like they own the place. Like everyone there works for them. Like they get to have multiple, you know, sandwiches, free refills, whatever they want, right? For me, the keys to the chip truck. But you walk around differently. My kids do it. They shouldn't. 
I don't have that kind of pool, but they think because I work here that they can walk around here like they own the place. And I'm like, guys, you're going to get me fired. But uh, they, they just have that idea. And, and how much more should we have that mentality that we walk around differently because of who our father is, because of how great our reward is. And so our perspective, our birthright is in hope. Next, our tribulation, it turns to hope. Back to Romans, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. It says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. He says, as we go through tribulations, we glory in those tribulations, knowing what ultimately they produce. Perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. That we go through difficulty, but we go through difficulty differently because of our hope in Christ. That we absolutely have pain. We absolutely suffer. We absolutely have difficulty that we go through. We're in a season of pain right now. But one of the beautiful things that I have been so blessed by is seeing this church go through this season of pain with an incredible amount of hope. Knowing where our pastor is, knowing where we will be, and knowing the situation that we were actually in, right? We're not in a situation that is desperate. We're in a situation that is absolutely superb. Having a God in heaven who is being worshiped right now by our Pastor Ray. And so we have hope even in our tribulation. And so hope, what it does is it reshapes our tribulation. It makes it look completely different because we know what the outcome. Tribulation with no hope is terrifying and should be depressing because there's nothing at the end that's gonna ultimately redeem it. But tribulation with hope has a completely different way of processing and looking at it and, and looking back on it. I think of my wife and her uh, pregnancies. We have three children, she's been pregnant uh, three times. And, um, and I think of those different seasons and what it was like. And, uh, and there was this one time where we were sitting around with friends, I think it was about couple years after my youngest, uh, my last child was born, our last kid was born, and, um, and we're talking to some people, and she tells them, I loved being pregnant. Now, I was never pregnant, but I was there with her uh, throughout all three pregnancies, and I remember moments that didn't seem like loving it. Uh, I remember lots of, you know, Lots of things, I'm not gonna go into details, lots of things that didn't feel like loving it in the moment. But here's the thing with pregnancy. You have the joy set before you that at nine months, and so, so all of the pain and difficulty is shaped by the anticipation of what is coming at the end of those nine months. All of it is for a purpose. All of it has great meaning to it, because at the end of it, you have this miracle that's both terrifying and horrifying and disgusting, but a beautiful thing 
and this great blessing. And so both in it, it's reshaped, and then after it's reshaped, and that's how she could look back and say, I loved being pregnant. And I'm like, did you love all of it? I loved it, right? Because our, our tribulation is reshaped by our hope because of what it's headed towards, because of what it ultimately leads, right? That every, you know, that a lot of the things that go wrong in the, uh, this, the womb, I always say stomach and I say it just to know my wife because it's not actually the stomach and she's like, it's not the stomach, but I just keep saying stomach. But um, it's because like that child is growing hair. It's because the child is developing and it causes your body, but it leads to something. And so all of our tribulation, pain, and difficulty leads to a great rejoicing in glory with Christ. And so we have hope that reshapes our tribulation. And then we have hope that allows us to endure our tribulation. It's because we know there is an end, because we know there is a purpose, because we know this life is short, because we see that God, he turns our failures, he turns the enemy's attempts, he turns them into victories. And so as we go through these things, we know that they are temporary. We know that they are not ultimately going to ruin us. And so we have hope in that because we see that there is an outcome that we are pressing towards. There was this study, uh, a kind of crazy study, uh, that was done with these, uh, a type of rats called the Warsaw rats. And what they did was they put these rats through um, a vigorous test that would really push them. And they, they tested to see how long the rats could last. And so with their first set of rats, there were ultimately two sets of rats, but with the first set of rats, they lasted 16 hours through this vigorous test. And so then uh, those, those rats, they were done. They, they did their part. Uh, but then they took another set of rats. And because they knew 16 hours was the number, they put those rats through 15 hours of a vigorous test, and then they removed them from the test. And then they gave it a couple days, let them rest, let them, you know, recoup. And then they put them into that test again. And the second time, right? Remember the first ones, they only lasted 16 hours. The second time they put them in this test, after they had been removed an hour before they were going to give out, the second time they put them in the test, they lasted 37 hours. And what the conclusion was from this test was that it was because they had hope, because they anticipated the reprieve that they kept pressing on. And they, instead of lasting 16 hours, they saw that they would be, would be pulled out of this tribulation, and so they pressed on for 37 hours, so much longer because of the power of hope because of this anticipation of being pulled out of this test. And so for us, guys, there is power in hope. That as God calls us to hope, it's not just because he wants us to be in a good mood. There's lots of different benefits. Everything that God does has design. He has joy and peace for us in hope because he knows the freedom that it brings us, but it's also because he knows that hope is what pulls us through. Hope is what brings us through the tribulations with confidence and with strength. And so hope has so much 
dynamic design in it that God calls us to this kind of hope, a hope that reshapes our tribulation, a hope that brings us the ability to endure tribulation. All right, two more. Hope is our testimony. Hope is our testimony. Let me read a verse to you guys that is not typically, hope is not typically the focus, but that we often quote. 1 Peter 3.15 says, sanctify the Lord God in your uh, hearts and be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So the part that's often singled out there is be ready to give a defense or always ready to give a defense uh, or always be ready. There's a website for that one. It's a very great website. If you need to ever find some tools for how to answer hard questions, alwaysbeready.com. But we focus on that. And then we focus also on the defense, the defending of our faith, that we're ready to argue, we're ready to, to debate, we're ready to stand up to any and every debate about everything from creation to Noah's Ark and the flood to, to uh, hell and God's judgment, his righteousness and pain and suffering. And we, we prepare ourselves for these. But what's so fascinating to me as I was preparing and praying over the, this topic over the last couple of weeks is he says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And what he's saying here is that people will be struck by the hope that is in us. That the hope that is in us will be the testimony of God working in our lives and it will cause people to see us and to say, where does this hope come from? Why do you live differently? Why do you have different love? Why do you have different joy? What is this hope that is in you? And so often we want to get ready for just the argument and we can find people who will argue with us. We can find people who will debate topics with us, but when they debate those topics with us, they're not really ready to come around. They're just trying to prove their point and we're trying to prove our point. What this is talking about is that when people see something in us, it so ignites a curiosity because they have a desire for it. They, they want what is within us. And so, so much more beneficial and a blessing to the kingdom of God and bringing people in the kingdom of God is living with a testimony of hope that compels people to want that. And so they come to you not saying, Prove to me Noah's Ark actually happened, but they come to you saying, I want that, and you're not then arguing creation, you're telling them God's love for them. You're telling them of his eternity that he wants to spend with them. Their desire is to hear why you can endure these trials and tribulations, why you can have so much joy and peace, why you're not wrecked by everyday life. What they want is that hope that is in you. And so as Christians, we have a testimony of hope that brings about a desire of everyone around us to want that. And that is where then they respond with an openness to the gospel, an openness to the defense of our faith, an openness to those answers. And they still may have those answers because those are still stumbling blocks, and so we should be ready to answer them. But what's going to ignite the desire for us to answer any questions at all is that they see that hope and they want it. And so we're called to have a testimony of hope. That that's to be the thing in our lives that draws people into the kingdom. They're not going to look at us if we're depressed, if we're discouraged, and think there's anything different about us. 
if we're just looking at the world around us and getting stressed out, but as we walk in light of eternity and hope is abounding within us, they're going to be attracted to that. And that's what they're going to want us to be ready to answer about. And so we are called to walk in that power, the powerful testimony of hope within us. And then now I come back to really what is the main point, is that we're to be fruitful in our hope, that this life is temporary. And that doesn't mean that we then just try and hunker down through this temporary life. It doesn't mean that we just tread water through this thing and try and make it without drowning. What it means is that as we go into life, we want to thrive. Not just survive, we want to thrive. Not bitterness, we want fruitfulness. We want to abound in Christ. Not just barely make it in Christ. And hope is what gives us that ability. And what I love seeing that in the scriptures is in the story of, of Daniel and the Israelites who stayed strong in their faith as they went into captivity. So let's turn to Jeremiah, if you can, chapter 29. We're going to look at a few verses as we've come towards our last couple minutes here tonight. Let's start in Jeremiah chapter 29 with that famous verse. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. The thoughts that he had for the Israelites who had been ripped out of their land and were headed into 70 years of captivity was to give them a future and a hope. So let's jump back real quick for a second. 29.1 says, uh, kind of sets the stage for where they're at. It says, now these are the words of the, of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive. So basically he's saying, this letter was sent to the leaders and the, the, the elders who were now in Babylon. This was sent to these people who, who were faithful to God, but who were now in captivity. And so it says, thus says the Lord to these people. This is within Jeremiah. It's an individual letter sent to these people. And it says in verse four, let's jump down. We're going to, just for the sake of time, only hit on a few of the verses. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse five, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And then we, you get to verse 11 eventually where it says, for I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. For the people of Israel who had been taken captive, a captivity that would last for 70 years, they were told not even in those 70 years to just tread water, to just try and make it. They were told to build houses, to plant uh, trees, to, to have families, to seek the peace and the well-being of those around them. That even for them, this was the message and this is the message for us. 
That even though this world is temporary, even though there's pain and there's difficulty all around us, even when things aren't going how we anticipate, even for them ripped out of their families, out of their home, maybe to never return, we have hope. And in that, we're to to seek the well-being of those around us. We're going to bear fruit. We're to thrive in Babylon. We're to see God's hand in his handiwork. We're to testify of him by not eating the king's uh, rations, right? By not bowing down to the statue, by continuing to pray daily, even if it gets us thrown into a lion's den. We're to thrive in Babylon. We're to bear fruit because there is a future and there is a hope. There's a Zerubbabel coming. There's an Ezra coming. There's a Nehemiah coming. There's gonna be a wall. There's gonna be a temple. There's gonna be eternity with Christ. And so we live differently, daily, bearing fruit because of the hope that is in us, because of our birthright, because of all that God has done and poured into us. So let's finish with a C.S. Lewis quote. I'm gonna put it, we're going to put it up there. Be, no, I didn't get it up there. OK, you're just going to have to pay attention. It's a long one. Hope means a continual looking forward to the eternal world. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Let me say that again. The Christians who did the most throughout history, right, just a second, start If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. So good. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the world and of others and of eternity that they have become so ineffective in this world. He finishes with this part. Aim at heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you will get neither that we are to live aiming for heaven, but with an effectiveness here, with bearing fruit here, with seeking the well-being, the peace, the blessing of those around us here. It is hope that elicits that from us. It is our birthright of hope. Let's say it again. I have a birthright of hope. Okay, you, I, I didn't prepare you properly. Now say it again with me, okay? I have a birthright of hope. We want to have that perspective of hope. We want to have hope that leads us through all of our trials and tribulations, that reshapes them, that causes us to be able to endure them, that leads to a fruitfulness in hope. Because we have a God of all hope who calls us to abound in hope, to flourish in hope, to bear fruit in hope. Let's pray. Oh God, we love you. We love you so much. Your mercies never fail us, God. Your grace has brought about hope within us. It has brought us your salvation. It has brought us eternity. It has brought us near. It has brought us inheritance. Oh, God, you are so good. We worship you. We glorify you in our hope. 
in all that we have received, Lord God, and all that we anticipate with such confidence. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you. So God, we worship you now in confident expectation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.